This is an ABC podcast. For everything that's good about sport, there's something bad as well. Kind of like life, really. These days, Nick Natanui is the star ruckman for the West Coast Eagles in the AFL, the strikingly tall guy with brown skin and dreadlocks. I'd, I'd copped it a lot, especially early days. There was no one who really looked like me that played the sport. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was hard at times. I'd cop it from over the fence, on the field as well. I used to get really upset and really down, um, you know, racism, because I never really understood it. I spent my whole life in Australia. In, in my head, I was an Aussie kid. Obviously, I looked different, but in my head, I was Australian. The racial taunts that Nick Natanui experienced as a kid are still happening in junior sport across the country. And in a moment, here on Sporty, some thoughts on how to fix the problem. Hi, I'm Amanda Smith. Let's hear first from a couple of boys who play soccer in Western Sydney. So my name is Osman Masudi and I'm 14 years old. I've been playing soccer for, I think, four years. I went to this uh, Nationals uh, tournament and from there I got scouted to come play for Parramatta FC. I'm Dirk Defoe, 14 years old. My play centre-back um, is crucial because I have to control the whole back line and communicate with everyone on the field. Derek was born in Australia, his family originally from Ghana. Osman was also born in Australia, his family from Afghanistan. Both have experienced racial abuse playing soccer. Uh, yes, we're versing a team, and then a parent shouted, uh, said I was a terrorist, and that made my game go down and affected me a little bit. It was a crucial game against this team. We were running down the sideline towards our end, shoulder to shoulder, and I pushed him out, and he called me a black dog. I actually didn't really care at that time, but towards the end of the game, he did say it again. And I just went to confront him about it, but everyone thought I was actually going to hit him or something. Um, Yeah, but I wasn't. Uh, I think about it, yeah, why did he say that or she said that. But I just ignore it and move on. Like Before the game, I just come to the game thinking like we're going to come have a good game and everything, not get racially abused. But then after the game, you know, because we lost that game, it made me feel like I'm really upset because like, we just lost the game, a crucial game, and I just got racially abused. Yeah, it's not a good feeling at all. Neither Derek or Osman think there's much they can say or do about it. Um, just really don't say there's no point in anything. You're not going to achieve anything. You're just going to make more people hate you. Like, you come onto the pitch, we just want to have a good game, and you saying that just makes me and my whole team like dislike you. It's not good for you. And the word eventually just gets out because we're teenagers and we talk and it's just going to have a bad effect on you. I would say to them, just stop. We're young. It's something very nasty and it's not right. 14-year-olds Osman Masudi and Derek Defour, who play soccer for Parramatta FC in Western Sydney. 
So how can and should junior sports clubs deal with these instances of racist abuse from players, other kids, or from spectators, often parents? Karen Farquharson is a sociologist at Melbourne University, and with some colleagues, she did an in-depth study of how junior clubs across a range of sports are managing racial vilification. First of all, though, Karen, what sense did you get from your interviews and surveys as to how common racist abuse is in junior sport? It's very common. It happens every week. It's a feature of junior sport, unfortunately. So do those clubs, junior sports clubs, usually have a process in place for dealing with it? So the junior sports clubs, and it doesn't really matter what sport, have a tribunal system. It's basically based on the Australian Football League's process. So what happens is somebody abuses somebody else. If they want it to be dealt with, they make a formal complaint, and that goes through a kind of a serious tribunal system. How often does does it come to that and how well does that work? In practice, it almost never comes to that because what ends up happening is that you have an eight-year-old kid who has been abused on the field, who gets pulled to the tribunal system and essentially the club has to get a lawyer, the other club has a lawyer, the kid has to prove that they weren't lying and it's not a good system for that kid. Um, so they almost never want to have that kind of process gone through. And so what actually happens is, if anything happens, they get pulled from the field to protect them. Which sounds like punishing them. It does. And that, that's how they experience it. That's why they never complain about it. And more commonly, the coach or the leadership of the club will talk to the other coach or the other club's leadership and say, look, this has to stop. Can you please do something about it? And that's kind of where it ends. And it, it doesn't, it's not really a systematic approach to stamping it out. So it's not terribly effective. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm pretty sure in the top level professional sports where in years gone by, this kind of language was common, that that has been stamped out among players because there are consequences and that sort of system that you referred to does work at that level. Yes, it works really well in professional sport. It's a very public... Yes, you're called out and everyone knows. There's also fines and suspensions, I think. That's right, but it's also your livelihood. In junior sport, it's very different stakes. And what happens more often than any consequences for the abusers is the abused just stop playing or they develop a really thick skin. You know, neither of those is a good outcome. Some of them might still love playing sport but just don't want to be abused every week. All right. Well, what could work? How can junior and youth sports clubs and players best manage this racist abuse then? So the one thing that we found to be quite successful in our study was when the players that weren't being abused rallied around the players that were being abused and basically said to the abusers, you have to stop doing that. So your teammates. That's right. Your teammates rally around you and your teammates basically say that's got to stop. The other thing that works is if the teammates refuse to play. Does that happen? Yeah, it has happened on a few occasions and that's really effective. So after going through our whole study, and the study really took two or three years to do, I've come to the point where I think a zero tolerance approach is probably going to be the most effective thing. Um, And that means that if a child is abusing another child, pull that child from the game or have actual material consequences so that they just don't do it anymore. Before, I was a little bit softer on it, but actually none of the processes that are common really work. 
The other part of the racial abuse thing is also racial abuse from the crowd, from parents, because that happens all the time, too, as the kid that you interviewed mentioned. So I think we need to have a zero tolerance approach for that, too, so that anyone who's abusing a child of any sort is asked to leave. Well, Karen, none of this is easy for junior sports clubs to do. What would help them to be better at doing this sort of stuff? Well, I think they could really benefit from policy advice from sporting peak bodies. It needs to be looked at. The whole system for managing racial abuse needs to be looked at and better advice provided by leagues, peak bodies, government around how we actually manage this more effectively. I think that clubs would really welcome that kind of support. Sociologist Professor Karen Farquharson, who's one of the authors of the study Managing Racism on the Field in Australian Junior Sport. And there's a great article about all this too on ABC Online. It's written by Sophie Kestevan. Kids are being subject to racist abuse at junior sports games. This club is taking a stand. That's what it's called. And there's a link to that on the Sporty website. Now, the stand that the AFL footballer Nick Natanui has taken is to write a children's book. It's called Little Nick's Big Day. Now, Nick, at 201 centimetres, six foot seven, it's hard to believe you were ever little. (laughs) Yeah, I think the majority of people say that. Well, this story is about your first day at a new school with an unequivocal message about accepting differences between kids, whatever they are. Now, how closely does it reflect your own experience as a child? Yeah, bits and pieces. I've, I've drawn on past experiences, obviously, when I first started school and some of the things that confronted me, I guess, um, you know, not looking the same as everyone else in my classroom and, and I spoke a different language at home. I ate different foods. But uh, we cover a bunch of different issues in, in the book as well. Children getting picked up by two mothers. There's a kid with a prosthetic leg or someone speaking sign language. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy to, to spread the word of diversity and, and differences as well. What Tell us a bit about your own family and cultural background. Yeah, my family's originally from Fiji, so from a small village just not far out of the capital. And, yeah, we still partake in a lot of traditional customs and traditions. And for me, culture is massive. Well, you initially grew up in Sydney, then moved to Perth. So you were starting a new school in Perth. That was your experience. Were you picked on or really made to feel different then? Yeah, I was. I think being a different looking kid um, and, you know, some of those things they bully you about. Little kids are the most ruthless people (laughs) on the planet and, and can be very straight up and straightforward. So it was challenging at times. It's hard to imagine now... You as, you know, a big, strong footballer being bullied. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, people said, why don't you stand up for yourself? But I didn't always look the same as what I, what I do now. I uh, was a small, skinny, skinny, skinny little kid. And yeah, at times I stood up for myself, but at times I, I shied away from it. But I think football probably helped save me a bit. Um, yeah, well, what role did taking up the local footy code play oh, in was, your childhood? It was massive. I think every child craves acceptance and, and wants to be, you know, a part of something. And for me to be able to excel in, in this this funny game that you know has a weird shaped ball, uh, which took a lot of learning, and I did cop criticism early days because I didn't have any idea what to do. My family never grew up with it, and I was the first one to play the sport. And uh, to excel in that, people started to go, "Oh, wow, this kid, he might be cool, or he might be picked first, you know, things like that." So um, that was probably my integration through this this thing they call football. What about later on, Nick, as a, as a teenager and young man on the footy field? Have you experienced, you know, as someone with brown skin and long curly dreadlocks, yep. 
ex- have you experienced racism from the crowd or other players that yeah. you're okay to yeah. talk about? Yeah, a heap. I, I copped it a lot, especially early days. There was no one who really looked like me that played the sport. So, uh, yeah, it was it was hard at times. I cop it from over the fence, on the field as well. And I think the AFL has come a long way in trying to stamp that out. I think everyone's well aware that it's not accepted anymore. Um, yeah, I'd be lying if I say I still don't cop it every now and then. You know, social media is probably the biggest platform in which I do receive it. When it happens to you, how does it make you feel and how do you handle it? It still upsets me a little bit, but I used to get really upset and really down. But now I, I use it as a tool to, you know, educate someone. So if someone says something, I'll find a way. How can I help them better understand me and, and where I'm from and why I look a certain way or why I act a certain way? Because at the end of the day, most of the time, the people that are, you know, doing these things, it's, you know, an insecurity or it's an ignorance. They, don't, they just they just don't know. So I never really get angry anymore. It's more just, yeah, how can I help you understand and help, you know, so it doesn't happen again. Well, from this book, I've learnt a few Fijian words. Yeah. Olomani Iku. There you go. That's close enough. Yeah, yeah. How, how should I say it? Yeah, Olomani Iku. Yeah, yeah. Fijian for I love you. I love you. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. That's the ending of the book. So, well done. You've nailed it. And Nick Natanui, in addition to being the big ruckman for the West Coast Eagles in the AFL, is the author of Little Nick's Big Day, a picture book for children. And so, Nick, I can now use the other Fijian word I learnt from your book, which is... <laughs> Mothe? Yeah, Mothe, yeah, that means goodbye. Spelled yeah. M-O-C-E. Yeah. Well, Mothe, Nick. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And thanks for joining us here on Sporty. Awesome, thank you. And it's Amanda Smith with you on Sporty. So how do you feel about children these days being able to tell you what the odds are for their team winning next weekend? Once upon a time in Australia, sports betting was illegal, except for horse racing and then only if you were at the track. These days, you can bet on all sorts of sports, anywhere, anytime. Titus O'Reilly is a sports satirist and comedian, but he can also be very serious about sport, as he is at heart in his latest book called Please Gamble irresponsibly. It's a history and critique of sports betting in Australia. And Titus, we are per capita the biggest gambling country in the world. Why are Australians, do you reckon, now and historically the great world champions of sports betting? Well, if you go back to when the convicts came out here, life was a gamble. They'd gamble on everything. They would gamble their lime rations to prevent them getting scurvy. They would risk their health. And there also wasn't a lot to do. So it was something to pass the time. Does it also tap into our kind of belief that we're all experts when it comes to sport? Well, I think when it comes to sports gambling, I mean, pokies are the big gambling revenue generator in the country or revenue subtracted, depending on who you are. And in that, you'd have to say there's there's not a lot of skill in that. But when it comes to sport, I think, yes, I think it is this idea that I've figured out something here, like there's either a, a horse in this race that I feel good about and no one else is onto it. I've got a system. I've got a system or, you know, I've been watching this team play for a while and I've really know them. And anyone who's in a, a footy tipping competition, you know, whether it's NRL or AFL, knows that no one really knows what they're talking about. So it's, we, it's, it is interesting. We as a nation that love winning, 
have become the biggest losers when it comes to gambling. Well, the Spring Racing Carnival is just just winding up now, and that, of course, is the traditionally the big betting period in this country. And the interesting thing is that historically, every attempt to ban gambling in, in Australia has always hit one snag. That's right, horse racing. The way from the very early days of, you know, the British coming here is it divided along one rule for the rich of what they could gamble with and on and how they would gamble, and that tended to be uh, horse racing. The lower class bet on cockfighting and boxing. Basically around 1900, the various colonial governments were forced to start to grapple with gambling as something that needed some regulation. And where there are attempts, especially by a lot of the Protestant groups that were trying to get it banned, they had the power really to ban anything that the lower class was doing. But the upper class owned and ran the the race courses and the horses. And that's where gambling always stayed a bit open. You could never fully ban gambling in Australia because of that. And that's always been the case right up to now. That's the one thing that's always stuck. Well, I have to admit to being not much of a gambler at all, though shake my family tree and a bookmaker will fall out. <laughs> but as, as you say, you know, uh, in the early years of the 20th century, the Protestant churches really got the upper hand, the wowsers. What were the consequences, though, of them winning that one? Every bit of gambling policy has ever happened in Australia is subject to the law of unintended consequences. They all don't work. Basically, what then happened was it gets pushed underground. With horse racing, gambling was legal, but only on the track. Yeah, Yeah. so you had the emergence of the SP bookies, the starting price bookies. These illegal all, SP bookies. Illegal bookies that were working in pubs and tobacco shops and barber shops and things like this, enabling people to bet illegally off track and without having to go to the racetrack, which many poor people couldn't afford to do. Starts off at the very start, very much the friendly bloke at the pub who is just helping the locals get a bet on. But of course, as the money starts to pour in, telephones are invented, the radio is invented, suddenly this money is just pouring into these things. They start to get controlled by criminal elements. They start to corrupt police. So it goes from having this ban, the, the, making gambling illegal that the Protestant churches had bought in thinking it would stop men's souls going to hell, it very much ended up in this huge amount of cash cow for illicit crime that went on to fund many other forms of crime. All right. So then when and how did legal betting on sports other than horse racing start to happen in Australia? Well, the first big step is 1959 the Victorian government hold a Royal Commission into gambling. New Zealand had introduced state-owned totaliser agency boards, TABs, which was where you could go and bet legally off track. The states had been dying in Australia to copy that model because it just brought in so much money. The illicit gambling meant it was a black market. There was no tax coming in. Yeah, the government wasn't getting any. The government weren't getting their cut. And they decided, well... Let's have a Royal Commission to try and get up. And all the other states were just praying that the Victorian one would recommend TABs because then they thought the dominoes would fall across the country, which it did. And that Royal Commission found that, you know, gambling was so widespread that on race day in Melbourne, every single pub had an SP bookie in it. 
You know, you had country towns with 500 people and they discovered they were serviced by four illegal bookies. They wouldn't have that many doctors or teachers or anything, but they've got four bookies. So they decided to make it legal and have the TABs came in in 1960 that were state-owned betting shops, basically, where you could legally bet off course. On horses to start with, this was the first Yes, that's still only horses. Still only horses. Now... The key bit here to understand how where we are now and how we got here is it is a bit of tax history. I, I know everyone listening, there's nothing more exciting than a bit of tax history. And what's basically happened over the course of since Federation, the federal government has clawed more and more ways of being able to tax the populace and taken them off the states. So the states have less and less areas they have control, yet the states are expected to deliver more and more services. And so what the states have all had is, under the Constitution, one area they do have complete control on taxation is gambling. So it's been tempted to move from the early TAB model, which was something called service don't promote, which is the view that we know there's going to be gambling no matter what. You can't stop it. It's in human nature. We will service that need, but we're not going to promote it. Around the 90s with the recession and this increasing lack of ability to raise their own taxes outside of gambling... All the states basically go all in on deciding we don't just want to be able to tax the existing gambling activity. We need more gambling activity to raise more taxes. So all these various TABs that are state-owned start to be privatised, become TABCOR, TAB New South Wales and UNITAB in Queensland. The others all had sort of South Australia TAB, etc. They thought this is a beautiful way each state controls its own destiny. Then the internet comes along. And up in the Northern Territory, they had started to license some sports betting agencies. agencies yeah, so Centre Bet and Sport it, Bet in, in the 1990s. No, in 92. And, and at the time, though, when they were licensed, it's the Northern Territory, the internet doesn't exist, no one cares. I mean, these were tiny operations. One had eight people, something like six computers, and operated off the Fanny Bay racecourse dance floor every Saturday, taking bets all day and then would have to pack up so the dances could happen. But in 1996, these various sports bookies decided, well, we'll get online. And you've got to remember, in 95, Bill Gates had his eureka moment of realising the internet was a thing and put out a famous memo to Microsoft saying, I think this internet thing is going to be a big deal. That was only a year before these bookies were all taking money online betting. They explode from one of them operating on the Fanny Bay dance floor to having 200 staff in the Rialto about six years later and billion dollars in revenue, all because of the internet. Now, this blows wide the regulatory framework in Australia on gambling and also effectively, without the governments having any say in it, makes betting on all sports, even internationally, basically completely legal and completely possible. Well, sport, of course, Titus, is perfect for gambling because it is an activity where there's uncertainty of outcome. Uh, And lots of people argue that having a bet is a really enjoyable way of being invested, invested literally uh, in the sport. It makes the match more exciting and interesting and involving. Mm. Uh, But one of the consequences of sport and gambling being enmeshed is that it can lead to match-fixing. So, can we talk now about the biggest match-fixing scheme in Australian history that happened in a place called Dingley? Yeah, this is... Dingley is a suburb in Melbourne that, as part of the Victorian Premier League, has a team... uh, It was called the Southern Stars. And 
Most people in Dingley would not know that this team even really existed. This is sort of a level below the A-League. Soccer is not the number one sport, but what happened with this team is they, they were really struggling. They were the worst team in the Victorian Premier League by an absolute When are we talking about? Mile. This is 2013? Yeah, 2013. They suddenly have a guy who had been coaching at Richmond show up one day and now, say... Now, this is not Richmond AFL club. No, this Richmond is a soccer in the club. VUP say, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm happy to coach and I'll do it for free and I've got some UK players who are excellent players and they're willing to basically pay for not much and I think I can bring sponsors as well. And the club just think, this is manna from heaven. This is amazing. So they sign up to it. What they don't realise is all of a sudden this club that no one in Dingley barely understands or even exists suddenly is having these huge amounts of money from Singapore and Malaysia especially being wagered on the outcomes of these matches. Of these little suburban Suburban soccer matches. And what this group had come in and done under a Malaysian cartel, basically, that runs these sports-fixing things is they'd been set up with the coach and these players who were skillful enough to basically lose by certain margins. So they were not just throwing matches, they were throwing them by a certain number of goals that people were betting on. Yes, and often in the way it's very lucrative, especially in Asia, you can say it's the score's 2-2 and there's 10 minutes to go, so the odds will fluctuate you can suddenly say, well, I think they're going to lose by two to four. All this money would come on, and lo and behold, ten minutes later, the Southern Stars would have let two goals slip through. One of the players happened to be the goalkeeper. One of the players in on the In on the scam, the fix. Um, People suddenly look at it and say, normally no one even bets on this, or if they do, it's like $10. Suddenly we're getting, you know, $200,000, million on this tiny thing. Something's dodgy going on. This is how the Southern Stars got flagged. And they started to have phone taps and all this sort of stuff. And that's how it all went down. The police raided them, found that they'd been set up. So you're a huge thing. And that club, the chairman of the club at the time said, we never even thought this could happen. And in fairness to them, this is a semi-pro, small club in the middle. Like, why yes, would you think Yes, it, but it? what it's saying is that in this current era of sports betting, no one is immune. No, th- I mean, this is the problem we now have is that it is so widespread that, you know, even really small leagues, which is actually what they mainly target. I mean, the AFL and the NRL, et cetera, have the money and wherewithal and political power and everything to actually be able to police it pretty well. It's these smaller leagues that are susceptible. Yeah. Well, Titus, what history tells us is that trying, as, as you've been indicating, trying to entirely ban sports gambling is counterproductive, but also that gambling, legal and illegal, produces all sorts of social problems and harms that we haven't really gone into, but everyone knows about them. But also that lots of people do it without getting into problems and find sports betting extremely enjoyable. So if this was um, if this was snog, marry, avoid, <laughs> which would you choose? Well, we've gone from around 1905 when the Protestant anti-gambling forces were at their peak, gambling in Australia on sports almost been completely made illegal, only on horse racing at the track, to suddenly the pendulum has just slowly started to move and then very quickly move to the point we are now where it's 24-7 access on your phone. 
which is very you don't no one can even know you do I could you know I can be sitting in a meeting board out of my brain I could be doing it now you could be doing it now and you wouldn't know I might think you've got a text from school saying someone's sick. So no one knows what you're doing, but really you could be putting on a large sizable bet on the NBA or something. And that's what people do, you know. But I think the real problem we've now got is the governments have not kept up with the technology of the internet, the fact that it's now these big overseas listed companies who are far better at separating punters from their money than the SP bookies ever were. Uh, and then you've got wall-to-wall advertising, unlike the service, but don't promote. You've got the let's let these guys get everyone on a gambling app from the age of 15. And all the research shows that young children are able to recite back as easily as their favourite players the odds, the, odds. the key sporting bets. So, you know, humans are terrible at it, but finding a happy medium, finding a, a moderate position is really what we need. We need to get the pendulum to swing back. So, snog. Yes. (laughs) And Titus O'Reilly is the author of Please Gamble Irresponsibly, The Rise, Fall and Rise of Sports Gambling in Australia. Sporty is produced by Nadia Hume and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.